Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, the Fraser History Museum in Louisville. Founded in 2004 by local philanthropist Owsley Brown Fraser, the Fraser was originally called the Fraser Historical Arms Museum. The Fraser documents and reinterprets stories from history using artifacts, exhibitions, and live daily interpretations written and performed by a staff of teaching artists. With the opening of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Welcome Center and the Spirit of Kentucky exhibit in 2018, the Fraser became the official starting point of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Recently, I sat down with Rachel Platt, Director of Community Engagement for the Fraser, and Melinda Beck, a Fraser performance artist, to learn more about the museum. Rachel, tell me about the Fraser Museum. I've been here for a little more than a year, so as you know, Bill, I'm learning a lot about it still. Opened up, as you know, first as an arms museum, but it has ended up taking on all different metamorphoses through the years. And now what we are is mostly a history museum, all about Kentucky, where the world meets Kentucky is what we like to say. And and we've really changed a lot of what we do. Some of um, the history and our miniatures, they're all still there. But as far as what we do, the telling of hard stories and difficult stories, and have some fun with history as well. So the vision has really changed from an arms museum into Kentucky history, but also we've turned into the start of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail because you can't leave out Kentucky. You know, you can't leave out bourbon if you're talking about Kentucky and everything that that entails as well. It opened in 2004? The museum did, absolutely. And primarily as an arms museum at that time. And and um, uh, that lasted for, well, a, a number of years before and the renovation. Was, and Mr. Frazier, who started this, was a gun enthusiast. And that's where that all started from. And then after that, it ended up kind of changing through the years. And, and just to expand the, the imprint and the footprint of what we are and who we want to, you know, have come inside. And that was just a bigger audience and learning about Kentucky history. And that's where things started to change. So uh, as a Louisvillian uh, and now joining the Fraser in the last year, tell me a little bit about some of the other exhibits before we talk about your primary focus this year. Now, so you want to go into the exhibits that we've got coming up? Uh, well, well, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's say for the coming up, uh, if you can just recall when you changed from an arms museum to in what you were trying to do at that time? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that they've had. Now, this is prior to me. They brought in Princess Diana, and that was a huge thing. Recently, Mona Bismarck, who was a socialite here in Louisville, the Hunger Games, I would say, was probably one of the turning points with this museum. I would think when it came to imprint and, and bringing in Jennifer Lawrence and, and those kinds of things. But then we have the staples like the Lewis and Clark exhibit, because we we bring in so many field trips. We also have uh, a lot of things and artifacts with the Civil War and the Underground Railroad and many things like that that are constants here as well. And then we have different exhibitions that we bring in for a period of time. We're going to save the uh, the women's suffrage um, year that you're celebrating for um, uh, some other information. But tell me what else you have planned for this year. Well, this year we've got Pappy Van Winkle. So, of course, we have the, the bourbon mix that we're doing. Um, then we also have, we're trying to also 
reach more and more people? Who hasn't come to the Fraser, and why perhaps haven't they? Do they see themselves in our museum? And that's really important to us. So one thing that we're trying to do, we sit on the Ninth Street Divide, and we're trying to figure out, are we doing everything we can to bridge that divide? And one thing we're doing is bringing in an exhibit in May. It's called West of Ninth. And there are two bloggers, Wayne, uh, excuse me, Walt and Shay Smith, who have been writing about their neighborhood. And, and it started when a friend of Shay's said, I'm afraid to cross the divide to come into your neighborhood. And they said, well, really, we're no different than any other neighborhood, so let us introduce you to the people who live in our neighborhoods. That's how that started. So we thought that exhibit was really important. I've started doing programming here called Let's Talk Bridging the Divide, and it goes hand in hand. And that really was part of the reason why I was hired last year is to have some of those difficult conversations here and to make sure that everybody feels welcome here and to have, you know, uncomfortable conversations in a safe space where we can all learn and grow. Women's suffrage uh, and the focus on the anniversary is such a, an important part of what we all should be focused on uh, throughout the United States as well as uh, here in Kentucky. Uh, tell me about uh, what you've built and what you anticipate around uh, your women's suffrage. I will effort. tell you, this started probably three years ago with a very small but mighty group of women who said 2020 has to be the year and has to be a big year in Louisville. And they pushed this forward with vision um, in celebrating in many ways. And they wanted many tentacles. They didn't want it to just be a celebration. They wanted to look at the tough history of suffrage and sometimes how it splintered. And sometimes there wasn't inclusion between white women and African-American women. So we're looking at all of that, but most importantly, celebrating that there's still work to be done. And we still Still need to push forward and that's going to happen with an exhibit and more than 100 community partners that we're all teaming up together to do everything from our exhibit here at the Fraser, which is kind of the epicenter of it to art contests voter initiatives uh, speakers and all sorts of panel discussions conversations voter initiatives you name it we're doing it and you're also partnering with a number of other um uh, nonprofits, uh, history centers, uh, uh, colleges and universities in the city too. It, eventually, we're going to have a citywide calendar that will be just for the centennial celebration. So everybody knows that this is a collaboration. We really want to make a mark and let people know that Louisville is serious about suffrage and, and moving forward. And that's where we thought, you know, we're stronger together. And, and that's what we're hoping to do with this commemoration this year. Why is the focus on suffrage um, so important and should be important to all of us? What do you tell young people who really don't uh, and, and haven't really focused on it, maybe like some of the rest of us? Well, and I'll tell you, the thing is that when you look at the struggle, I mean, for for suffrage and women to get the right to vote was decades. And many of the women who fought for it died before they, you know, women got the, the chance to even vote. And you look at some of the disparities now and you realize that we still have a long way to go. And that really is hoping to empower young people to realize, you know, people that they're learning about, if it weren't for them, some of this change wouldn't happen. And to give them a voice and know that one person, one voice, can make a difference. I think if I had to say anything, it would be that, to empower a young person to know they can, in effect, lead to change. We're going to talk to Melinda Beck in just a, a moment about the uh, performance uh, of some suffragettes that she does. 
But what are the other programs? You mentioned to me a, um, a vote program that you're doing uh, w- with the school system. Tell me a little bit about the We're details We're trying of that. to, um, we have a deadline next week, as a matter of fact, for this. We're trying to get schools, we sent out a letter to all high schools in Kentucky, private, Catholic, public. Uh, you have to be a high school in Jefferson County. That That really is it. We're hoping to give seed money for students to... Uh, end up having a campaign to either get fellow students to register, to talk about voter suppression issues, whatever they want it to be, just to engage students to be part of the voting process. So that's one. We're doing um, recognizing trailblazers in the area. Who are the women who came before us, the uh, the shoulders that we stand on? Um, I'm doing something on civil discourse. You and I both know Mm -hmm. with politics now, can we talk anymore? Mm -hmm. And that is really going to be the impetus for one of my conversations coming up in October. Mm-hmm. We're doing a voter panel with different people in our community, and Renee Shaw is going to co-moderate it with me and just talk about what are the issues that get people to vote, what, what I guess, obstacles are in the way for voters in Kentucky, you know, what suppression issues are people still dealing with, because we're also looking at the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And as we all know, it's not a level playing field, and there's still a lot of work to do. Do you think there are people... Um that still really don't understand the impact of um, what happened uh, those many years ago and 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 how today we're celebrating the fact that so many people worked hard to 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 be able to give women and 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 all of us uh, the the freedom to cast a ballot I do think there is a lot of gaps in knowledge. And I will tell you, and I take ownership for my own gaps in knowledge. I am learning the names now of women I had never heard of, many of them African-American and many of them not, and going, how did I not know this name? I'm finding out about so many remarkable, strong women and going, what's wrong with this picture that that these women aren't idolized, memorialized in so many ways and in many hidden names that I never knew about. So I can't blame everybody else. There are many I'm still learning Mm -hmm. about. So that's the work that uh, Frazier does. That's the work that uh, Kentucky Humanities in our historical area uh, tries to do uh, every day. And one of the ways that we do that are are our Chautauqua uh, performers and and, uh, characters. And um, the Frazier has their own, uh, uh, quite a number of them, but, but Melinda Beck is one of uh, the performers here. Is that the correct uh, uh, phrasing that you are? Are you a performer? Or are you a theatrical? What, what is it, Melinda Beck? Uh, well, we wear a lot of hats here. I would say we call ourselves historical interpreters, and we are also serving here as teaching artists. So. Um, we work under uh, we work with Rachel under the umbrella of the education department, and that includes everything from hosting field trips, uh, conducting outreach, and going into schools. Uh, it also includes engaging uh, with the public when regular museum guests come in, uh, hosting panels, as Rachel mentioned. So, really, uh, we create programs based on um, what the needs are, what our exhibits are, and most importantly which figures in history we think have compelling stories to tell. So the the two or three that you are concentrating on, uh, tell me about the process that you've been through to um, to learn more about them and, and how you go through the process of getting ready to, to make a presentation. 
Sure. Um, well, there's actually a technical term for that called dramaturgy. And I know the Chautauqua performers conduct that as well. So dramaturgy is basically where you take a bunch of old, dry research mm -hmm. <laughs> and you turn it into something um, interesting, engaging, and you stay true to the facts, but you compose a story and that you tell in about 15 to 20 minutes. And it's a great way to engage people who are either being introduced to a topic or want to know more about something. So for example, last year we generated um, a whole um, group of performances based on the Underground Railroad mm -hmm. here in Kentucky. Um, and that program was so satisfying that we knew when suffrage was coming up, we would find so many hidden stories. And one of those is of Cornelia Beach. Um, Cornelia Beach was a, really relatively unknown. So like what Rachel was saying, um, she was a brand new name to me. I couldn't even find a photograph of her, but she was one of the very few women active here in Louisville in the National Women's Party, which was the militant branch of the movement founded by Alice Paul. And Louisville, um, importantly, was very active on the national lecture circuit. And of course, that also included Lexington and Danville and a handful of other towns here but Louisville hosted quite a number of famous suffragists. And so when Doris Stevens arrives in Louisville, she was a councilwoman uh, in the NWP. Um, Cornelia shows up to that lecture because she really wants to understand what's going on in Washington, DC. What are Wilson's, President Wilson's decisions? And there was a lot politically and socially at stake at the time. And when she delivers this lecture, um, she and a handful of other women decide to take the plunge and go to Washington, D.C., picket the White House. Um, and this would have been in mid-1917, so we were already entered into World War I. The stakes were very high. So you can see how <laughs> there's a lot to pack into 15 minutes. There are a lot of questions that I answer about her, about um, the political situation at the time. And the feedback that I get from guests is incredible because most of them say, I had no idea. First of all, I had no idea how active Kentucky was in the movement. I had no idea that suffrage spanned over 72 years leading up to 1920. I had no idea this or that. So most people don't even get suffrage in school um, or maybe they get a day where mm. It, they just mention, uh, well, women got the right to vote in 1920, and that's the only time that we're going to spend on it. Mm -hmm. So it's really refreshing to hear feedback from not just um, students, but other adults that this has opened a window into a topic that is deeply important and um, current <laughs> and exciting, too. There are a lot of really amazing stories. So Miss Beach happens to be one of those uh, that you portray. Is there another uh, character that you also perform? Yes. Um, so the next person that I felt would be really important to share is named Tilly Anderson. Now, Tilly Anderson was not a traditional suffragist as we understand them. Um, but one of the questions that we asked here at the museum was, how do we explain suffrage to elementary school kids? First of all, how do you point out um, how men and women were unequal in history? How do you um, explain such a huge uh, topic, particularly involving politics? 
um, when students haven't touched on politics at all yet? So the answer was, um, how do you introduce something uh, in sort of a smaller package? And the answer was identifying something that they do every day, which is learning how to ride their bike. Mm. So Tilly Anderson was a famous uh, bicyclist. She was uh, the women's world champion of bicycle racing. And she became a household name uh, in the US. Um, But her story is really compelling. She was an immigrant. She was born in Sweden and moved as a teenager to Chicago. And her father died when she was really young. And of course, one of the only ways for women to make money would be as a seamstress or something else. Uh, similarly, telephone operators uh, working in a bottling plant, you know, something similar. And so uh, she took a job as a seamstress. And of course, it just wasn't feeding her soul. Well, Luckily, this lined up with the bicycle craze that swept the country. So in the early 1890s, the safety bicycle was imported from England, and it really changed the the landscape of Gilded Age cities. Um, And more importantly, it changed what it meant to be a woman leaving your house. This was the first time women could leave their homes without being chaperoned, uh, being followed around by a brother or an older unmarried woman in your family uh, to go shopping, go to church, you name it. And so it gave this incredible sense of freedom and liberation that women had never experienced before. And in fact, Susan B. Anthony even had her own a quote that became well-known later about how she rejoiced every time she saw a woman ride by on a bicycle. It was the picture of uh, untrammeled womanhood, is how she put it. And it's really amazing to think that um, something as simple as a bicycle, which we all take for granted today, led to dress reform. Women could wear clothes that were practical (laughs) and made sense. Um, It led to um, women being able to enjoy the public sphere and get to work in a way that they hadn't been able to before. Um, And it started shifting gender roles as well. The idea that women athletes existed in the 1800s is a pretty crazy concept, right? Mm -hmm. We would never consider that when we look at this time period. And so for this golden era of about six years, women's bicycle racing completely um, captured the the hearts and minds of the American public. And Tilly Anderson was at the forefront of that. Um, She was really famous in Chicago and Minneapolis, but Louisville actually served as um, one of the major racing hubs nationwide. And people would come from all over to watch these races. And you might be asking, well, why were the women's races more popular than the men's? Well, first of all, women's racing was a novelty, right? And there was uh, also a lot of controversy surrounding it. You know, a lot of naysayers would ask, how can women do something as uh, brutal and intense as racing? Mm -hmm. And this was the fastest people had ever seen human beings travel. Um, A lot of bicycles could outpace a horse. Mm -hmm. So the fascination was already there. What were the real differences in the men's and the women's races? There were huge differences. Uh, Men had been racing for at least the previous decade on what were called high wheelers. So those are the the bicycles from the Gilded Age with the giant wheels in front. And um, those were more of a novelty. And so when cities were holding those races, 
Um, those were actually open to both men and women, even though it was frowned upon for women, uh, because the rules hadn't really been developed yet. So by the time the safety bicycle is introduced, which is essentially what we ride today, they look pretty similar, um, the races were sanctioned by the League of American Wheelmen, except only the men's races were sanctioned. And uh, the races that were frowned upon were called six-day races, where the men would essentially conduct these huge marathons where they'd race for 16 hours a day. It would be six days long, and it didn't really draw any crowds because the men would look like zombies and they would be really haggard and tired and trying to stay upright on their bike. And there just wasn't anything um, interesting or competitive about those races. And so race promoters decided, well, there should be a way to make this uh, a lot more fun for audiences, really entertaining and turn it into a true sport. And so they not only built their own racetracks called velodromes, but they also shortened the races so that it would still be six days, but you only have um, two hour matches twice a day. Your squads would be separated between racers who were uh, fast and racers who were more in the amateur rank. And uh, the, the women would be really, truly incredible athletes. So with the competitive nature of those races, um, the model of the races, and the fact that uh, the race promoters thought that women would really bring in the crowds, they were right about it. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was successful. You seem so enthusiastic about uh, <laughs> you, you, just describing this. And you must uh, not only be fascinated by what you've learned, but I'm sure presenting in front of especially school children uh, is not only challenging but but fun for you absolutely um it's it's really fun to see kids eyes light up and as a performer i really want them to feel like they're there with me and um what's incredible about tilly's story is it brings up uh you know basic social standards that we take for granted today even things like what you can wear to school. Girls can wear pants now, but in Tilly's day, um, bloomers were considered uh, not necessarily scandalous, but they were making a, a social statement by mm -hmm. saying, I'm wearing bloomers and this is a practical outfit <laughs> versus wearing maybe a more fashionable outfit at the turn of the century. Um, and it even got to the point where the professional racers specifically um, in their first week of racing in Chicago in 1896, they wore traditional riding outfits, what most women would wear when they rode their bikes. So perhaps bloomers, large puffy sleeves, you'd have a cap. And it was men only for cycling. You were not allowed to wear it anywhere else mm -hmm. or church, for example, it was very much frowned upon. But they quickly realized after a week or two that they were not able to get up to the speeds that they needed to actually win a race. They were cumbersome. They got in the way. And so within just two weeks, they completely abandoned the bloomer outfit and instead adopted very tight leggings. So tights, um, cropped shorts just above the knees that were um, certainly form-fitting, and then long form-fitting sweaters as well. And it was uh, considered, that was the outfit that was considered to be very scandalous. And Tilly's mother and older sister 
uh, were very unhappy that she was riding around a velodrome <laughs> in front of crowds of 5,000 people in these very tight outfits. But they all admitted to the press, all of these women who got really famous, that they were not able to do their jobs if they didn't wear something that made sense for racing. I'll bet you anything uh, that the um, organizers of that were men. <laughs> I was going to say they should have been offended by the corsets, right? <laughs> Any woman should have been offended by those. Well, it's a fascinating story, uh, stories, and to know that they went on here in Louisville is uh, even more so. Uh, Rachel, um, just quickly uh, to sum up, uh, You've, uh, after a 29-year career uh, in television uh, and, and a year here at the Fraser, just tell me, uh, I just recently commented to someone about uh, life after television, and, and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Have you enjoyed being here? I really have. You know, I believe in second chapters. I know you do, too. And, and after telling stories there, this was the perfect fit to continue the dialogue and to continue the conversations. So I feel like I'm still telling stories just in a different way and at a history museum. And what I would say to people is history museums, it's not just about the past. It certainly is because you learn from the past, but you connect what you've learned there to the present and the future and make better decisions and hopefully have a better future. And I have found that this history museum is a living, breathing place trying to get people to come in to be part of that dialogue and empower them to know the stories of the past so they can help make for a better future. And I think all of that, as you well know, with everything you've done in your life, and part of that just comes through informing. So if um, someone is listening to uh, Think Humanities podcast and they've not uh, traveled to, uh, to the Fraser and uh, haven't been to Louisville in a while, give me uh, just a, a couple of really good solid reasons why they should uh, make the trip from Western or Eastern Kentucky or for that matter from Louisville uh, to come uh, and visit the Fraser. I would say certainly with suffrage, if you've never been, that would be a great time to come. It opens on March the 19th. You've heard from Melinda the exciting stories that she's telling. You'll see live actors here telling those stories. You'll learn from artifacts of the past connected to the future and see how, you know, things do connect. And I think that would be a time, I guarantee you, you will learn something you didn't know before. And that's what I keep saying is you're going to learn about names and go, why didn't I know that? Where is this gap in knowledge coming from? And you'll walk, you'll walk away a smarter person and hopefully feel more empowered that you do have a voice and you can affect change. And if people feel that way, it's a trip. It's worth the trip. Well, thank you both very much for being our guests on Think thank Humanities. You. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.